Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Hi, thanks for tuning into the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. Each week we bring an in-depth interview with a different creative Mississippian. This week I'm talking with Tom Curson from Clinton. Tom, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, Tom, you're a professor of sociology at Jackson State. I am. And so you've been in Mississippi for several years. Since 2008. But today we're uh, here to talk about a book that just came out on the University Press of Mississippi, by the way. Uh, They do a lot of great regional work. And this book is called Where Misfits Fit Counterculture and Influence in the Ozarks. So you have a academic interest in the Ozarks, but you also kind of have your own personal story about the Ozarks. Tell, tell us a little bit about why you why you decided to do this book. Well, the um, the book actually, it took a while for me to think that this would be a book project. Several years, I had gone up to West Plains, Missouri, uh, and I would present on a topic about the Ozarks. And, you know, over time, there was a, uh, a presentation about UFOs in the Ozarks. Another one would be about uh, Black Oak, Arkansas and, um, you know, Ozark Mountain Daredevils. And just a number of these presentations. And finally, some people came to me and said, Tom, you've got chapters in a book. You need to go ahead and write a book. And this is the product of that. The other interesting thing about these chapters and where they came from is that uh, I had a lot of help that I didn't anticipate. People uh, were enthusiastic that someone was finally, you know, talking about about some aspect of this region that I hadn't uh, uh, really thought about, and they wanted to share some information. Uh, For instance, some communes that uh, existed that people were members of, or, you know, the UFO stuff, and even the cartoon chapter about Little Abner, uh, an expert looked at the chapter and gave me some insights about stuff. And so, yeah, I was very interested, you know, to realize that this is a pretty much a team thing or a village thing. And you have your own kind of personal connection to the region as well. Maybe we'll t- maybe you can kind of go into it maybe in a little bit uh, later, but, but you, you spent some time there uh, earlier in your life. Uh, so I won't go in depth and to tell you uh, want that. But anyway, it was about 1978-79 that we went caravan style. I'm from the West, from Denver originally, and I was uh, a tween, 11, 12, something around there. And uh, we were going out west, uh, sorry, east, and to a place I'd never, I didn't even know how to pronounce it. I thought it was, is it Arkansas or is it Arkansas? Um, I didn't know what a tick was, had no idea of anything. So we just went lock, stock, and barrel, sight unseen, and up into the Ozarks, and uh, went caravan style with all these old pickup trucks, listening to Bob Seeger and other things on uh, 8-track cassettes. I am burned out on that still. <laughs> um, and we ended, we ended up in a, uh, a commune. Uh, we created a commune up on the hill for that, that winter time of 78, which was a, a bad winter. So for people who are not, there are people that do do some vacationing up in Arkansas, or go to the Buffalo River maybe to do mm-hmm. kayaking or canoeing. But let's, for people who have never been up in that area, maybe talk a little bit about just the geography. And that's part of your book too, is kind of like 
what is what are the what is this region? What are the what are the boundary points of it? But mm-hmm. if you can, and maybe just the roughest way, say like what's the generally accepted uh, okay part of the Ozark? Now, people can contest this, but you said the roughest way. I would say when you if you were to draw a line from Kansas City to St. Louis and think downwards uh, to the River Valley of uh, Arkansas, which would be looking at Clarksville, Ar- uh, Arkansas, and Russellville, that I forty place. That spot in between St. Louis, Kansas City, and Clarksville, Russellville, Arkansas would be kind of the idea of what Ozarks are. Now, there's a little bit of Oklahoma that is the Ozarks, too. Yeah, the Ozarks really are the Ozark Mountains, and they are beautiful, a bit underdeveloped, and uh, um, I think many of the people like it that way as well. So in kind of in most general terms, again, people are going to you know take issue with it. It's kind of like southern kind of southern central missouri and combined with kind of the, these northern kind of mm-hmm. counties of arkansas right so right on the kind of the boundary line between the two states is kind of the heart of it i guess or. yeah um it's it's kind of hard to figure out these boundaries especially when people uh identify with themselves as ozarkian uh inside or outside well outside the boundaries both north and south of the ozarks and east and west as well i'm not sure that Maybe now they're a little bit more picky about that, but in the past, I don't think people in the Ozarks really looked at folks and say, you know, somehow said you are an Ozarker or you're you aren't. And I know that uh, you know sometimes uh, folks from the Washita Mountains um, have a certain affinity with the Ozarkian folks. Uh, so it's about the mountains, and I think the big scheme of things is if you don't really, if you have a positive view of the Ozarks, I think they'll welcome you no matter where you are from. So. The River Valley, which is kind of south of it just a little bit, uh, so you're talking Clarksville, uh, Russellville, Ozark itself, the town of Ozark This that goes into Fort Smith and all that, there's a, a river that is, uh, the you know, the, the, the point of it being called River Valley. But those folks, I believe, are uh, oftentimes referring to themselves as Ozarkers as well. And uh, it's, it remains to be seen whether Arkansas the folks of Arkansas start to take on that term more than other terms, like uh, will they refer to themselves as Ozark first and then Southern second? Right. There is some kind of, uh, although it is kind of, I would be thinking culturally at least, it's kind of brought into the broader South. There is kind of some divisions between, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like there's divisions, I guess, in Kentucky between the people in Western and Central Kentucky and the Appalachian Appalachia. counties. Yeah. yeah, it's that kind of the same thing. I think there's a mountain culture that really, uh, uh, for some reason, Appalachia, uh, when we think of uh, out east, that's a, a, a culture that permeates quite a bit of things. But the, in the Ozarks, too, you don't have to be in the Ozarks for, uh, you know, like what I say in the book, there are a lot of businesses outside of the Ozarks that take on Ozarks as their name and events that take on Ozarks as part of its name. So, yeah, I, the, the cultural boundary is really fuzzy. The physical boundary is pretty much to the mountains. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Tom Curson, and we're talking about his new book, Where Misfits Fit, Counterculture and Influence in the Ozarks, which is on University Press in Mississippi. The book is divided up by a, a bunch of different kind of I guess, larger, to- you know, specific things as well as the kind of larger topics to kind of draw out some of the distinctiveness mm-hmm. of the Ozarks in, in culture and history and, and, and things that have happened recently and farther away. One of the things I 
thought was interesting is how kind of the Ozarks are seen as this kind of frontier space. But, you know, they were seen as this frontier space like when you went there in the 70s and then going all the way back almost 100 years before that. It's like they've been consistently kind of this other, you know, even Mm -hmm. though all, you know, electricity is there, et cetera, et cetera. There's still this kind of sense of it being this front not even front our frontier or just you know like a natural environment that is unspoiled yeah i uh, i use the term liminal space it's um uh i think the most fitting idea of what ozarks are they're kind of between um mainstream society and just totally out in the woods you know total wilderness being isolated and so they're kind of this transition place where maybe as other americans are trying to find uh, ways to experiment with living, experiment with music, experiment in all sorts of fashion, they can come to this liminal place, this place of transition and do things. And so, uh, yeah, I do think the Ozarks allow for that. It's uh, uh, Maybe in the past, I don't want to get too romanticizing. I don't want to romanticize what's going on now. But at the time I was there, it was, you know, lots of things going on. Interesting place. Lots of people come from all over the the uh, United States and around the world. And that's one of the reasons I hope this book is not taken just as a regional book, but kind of as, um, you know, almost like America's place to experiment. And it, w- it truly was. I mean, people were coming from all angles of life down into the Ozarks because the land was cheap. Isolation allowed them to do things that maybe weren't quite legal, like us. And I think that, you know, these liminal spaces, they don't last. They're impermanent. So I'm not sure that they still exist in the Ozarks. And I want to really emphasize that point. But when I was there, and for some of the cases I talk about in the book, different facets of this liminality, this transition space that the Ozarks happen to be in. Early on in the book, you talk about the town of Eureka Springs, which is interesting in that it, it seems to have, like its meaning has changed over the years. Like it starts out as one thing, and then as it goes through time, it kind of takes on new identities. And yeah. you, you note how, like, it's, uh, it's like a motto or catchphrase that describes it has changed multiple times over the years. Yeah. And so it, it is kind of like a, a – and then it's also where your title of your book came from as well. It's, it's referring to your Eureka really, Springs. Really good title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about Eureka Springs and how it, it, it kind of is uh, emblematic of some of this stuff that we're Well, I, I, it is an interesting place. I, I know it's – some will say it's touristy, but, you know, I think that's kind of uh, that blasé of, you know, a backhand thing of saying it's touristy takes away some interesting things that are going on in uh, Eureka Springs. Just architecturally and the way this, the town is laid out, they had about five names, five models, like you were mentioning. And one of them was Steps, Stepside Town or something like that. So they have all these different names and they're kind of reflections of its identity. But you know, the town really was not built up in a very logical fashion. And uh, one early commentator said, you know, the best he could reason about how the town was planned out was maybe a snake had wither, uh, you know, slithered across whatever, and that's where they planned to put stuff, that pathway. And I kind of see that because when you look at Eureka Springs, it too is a liminal spot. It's kind of like a microsm, microsm of the Ozarks, as a matter of fact. It's It, it, it has these places in it, these alleyways, like Diagon Alley almost, if you're looking at Harry Potter. And it's just a kind of magical place. It has a lot of counterculture vibe, and I attuned 
to people who are trying to make money off of that. I've been to Sedona. I've been to Marfa. I've been to Roswell. I've been to all these different places that purport to have some type of vibration or paranormal or whatever. Of all those places, the one that seems the least fake is Eureka Springs to me. And I think that's because it was its origins come out of the idea that there was magical water there. The thing about Eureka Springs, too, is I think there's an earnestness with the, the even the conservatives, because that's also the home of the uh, Christ of the Ozarks and the Passion Play. There's an earnestness for whatever the folks are out there doing uh, that I think goes past. Yes, they want to make money, but they have an ideal of one sort or another, and they want to express that ideal in the Eureka Springs. And Eureka Springs has kind of become like a gathering in, in addition to kind of the mysticalness of the mm-hmm. of the people feel the vibrations or whatever <laughs> but uh that has become a gathering place for different types of oh, boy, subcultures yeah, yeah yeah um so uh what i can gather right now in my mind there's a morel mushroom conference there's a ufo conference there's a paranormal conference and those two are usually back to back there's an lgbt conference there's a biker thing there's uh, a chainsaw. I think there was a chainsaw thingy going on. Of course, there's all these folk life and um, music types of things that go on in Eureka Springs. And you just name it, and it's probably out there. Uh, and it's interesting because it is really bunched up in this little crevice of a place. And uh, it, it, if you drive through it, it just it's just really totally different. It's, I don't know that there's any really uh, space like it anywhere else in the United States, really. And you attended one of the conferences? Yes, Isn't that I right? Did. Yeah. <laughs> How was that? Well, I'll, I have to watch my words, I think, a little bit on that. I don't want to offend people, but, in a, you know, those are touchy. Some people really have deep-seated beliefs about that stuff. But I went there because I am a sociologist and I study religion. And in many ways, what I saw there was kind of religious-like. And, and many of these people are bringing their background in religion, quite a few of them, uh, Catholicism. And so two of the leading speakers, one was uh, Eric Von Daniken, who wrote Chariot of the Gods in the 70s, a really big book. And then another one was, um, oh, I forget his name, but he wrote Communion, which is another, pop- it's another popular book, but more recent. Uh, so these people, they come in and they do their talk. And all the, I mean, this is a large crowd. I don't know, thousands, more? I don't know how many is out there. And it's like line and verse when they're talking about stuff up there people in the audience know about and they were comparing notes about when they were uh, you know I was listening around and comparing notes about when they were abducted or whatever and you know it reminds me of the time I had the first time I ever went to a holiness church and saw people people speaking in tongue and rolling around on the floor it was just something totally different and I wasn't shocked I kind of have that uh, anthropology uh, stance and just you know watch and learn This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey. Our guest today is Tom Curson, and we're talking about his new book, Where Misfits Fit Counterculture and Influence in the Ozarks. Tom is a professor of sociology at Jackson State and has been studying, is a, uh, lived in the Ozarks and has been studying it for several years. Well, maybe let's talk a little bit about your own experience a little more in detail. So this, and you, and you go into it in, in the book as well. Your parents were back to the landers, people that thought, let's... Let's simplify our lives, and let's and and your family had land up there yes, as well, my, right? My grandfather had um, eighty acres, so again we went caravan style, sight unseen. We lit at the point at that point where we decided, or Dad did, decided to make this journey and take us, me unwillingly. I mean, I had a Seven Eleven with sl- uh, slushies and the big comic books, you know, the big ones. And I, that was heaven. That was in El Paso. And I love El Paso. And, and so um, all I know is when I was about 11 or so, we pulled up all the stops and a number of other people in other pickup trucks decided to go along with us up into the Ozarks, this windy highway called Highway 21. And as we're, I mean, the snow is just high. It was a bad winter. And there was nowhere to pull off, or you wouldn't know where to pull off because the sheer drops and all that stuff. And we finally were able to stop, and so some of the things are really new to me. That journey up on the mountain was the first time I've ever tra- uh, tasted sulfur water. I had no idea what that was. That was probably the worst thing I ever smelled and tasted. As we got up on the hill, as we called it, there was nothing around. So, I mean, nothing. So people often ask me, where were you close to? This is the Ozark National Forest. We're not close to anything. Trees, I guess. And so we had a cabin, a rough-hewn cabin that had tar paper as a roof. And, um, you know, they had newspaper between this rough-hewn logs. And all of us were in that. All these couples, single people, my family. And my family was my two sisters, myself, and my dad and my mother. So we're all in that place. It leaked. It was cold. We had a little potbelly stove. And we had a well that wasn't even tested, and I was the one that had draw water out of it. And we put a big galvanized pan of water on a potbelly stove, heat it up, and then the kids would get the last dirty remnants of that water after everyone else washed up. So um, I, I think once the thaw came, almost everyone said, this is not fun. We don't want to do this. And I should say also, too, that my dad and I and others, we were ill-prepared, which is the case for many of the backlanders. They just did not know. And we weren't well-received either. Uh, we weren't the turn-the-other-cheek hippies. We were kind of, my father was in a, a gang, a motorcycle gang out in Colorado. And so we actually, uh, you know, we had to hold our own. Some people tried to uh, change the boundary lines on our land, and we had to fight them off, literally fight them off. And they left us alone. They became the best of fa- friends after that, but... Uh, we had to fight them off. It's kind of sad because even though it was really hard and I didn't really like it and I was isolated, I had no one really to talk to, I was able to walk down to the creeks, to uh, waterfalls and things like that and read a lot and take a book with me and all that. And I think that shaped who, who I became. Were you connected at all? You, you talk, you interview some of these other back to the long, kind of long time back to the lander couples, especially mm-hmm. Did you have connections to, did you know about or connect with those other people at the time, do you remember? Or was it more that you were kind of off on your own? Well, the short answer was we were off on our own. But it's ironic because in my class, my high school class, and 
people might find this hard to believe, there were only 13 kids. And it was a school called OARC. And in the school itself, I might have the numbers off a little bit, but I think from kindergarten all the way to the 12th grade, it was maybe 120 kids. In my class and the class above me, so there there were uh, two girls, and in my class there was another girl. So two separate families in my class and in the class above, and they were back to landers. I did not know that. And I know when you're in a class with 13 people, you know everything about them. But for some reason, it didn't register. It didn't make maybe because their communal experience or or, um, the back-to-land experience they had, because one of them wasn't a commune. It was kind of just a back-to-land experience. Their experience was kind of more social. They connected with other people, and they were part of a community. We never really were. We were always considered, uh, and I imagine even today, Dad is still considered an outsider. And I think that's true for anyone, really. Even if you're from Little Rock, one of the things up on the mountain is uh, you're really never an insider until you're born there. One thing that surprised me, though, you, so you do have a chapter that kind of interviews some of these different longtime uh, back to the landers and kind of talk about mm-hmm. their their origin experience, you know, their initial experience like yours and, and, and how they developed. One of the things that I found interesting is that it did seem like there was kind of some um, – I don't know if mentorship is too strong a word, but definitely some of them over time built kind of strong connections with longtime like neighbors and that, you know, or, you know, um, or original Ozarker type people, I guess, mm-hmm. especially maybe older, older people who saw them kind of trying to preserve the old ways or something like that. Oh, you're exactly right. I don't think I think it's I would make it stronger. Uh, the, uh, many of the backlanders came to the Ozarks, probably Appalachia as well really didn't have a background or clue at all. And they encountered people who their culture was dying because they were getting old. How to make a log hewn cabin, um, how to make a broom, or how to do uh, how to grow certain things and whatnot. All this was because the kids of those uh, native Ozarkians, they were running to the cities and to, or places that where they didn't have to do that. And so that culture was dying out. And so here comes this influx of hippies who are reading a Foxfire and Whole Earth News and Mother Earth News and all that and saying, wow, you know, I think we can do this. And so they did get mentored in many ways. And I think it was a mutual thing because the influx, those folks were educated. So they were able to negotiate other spaces, uh, you know, maybe uh, spaces that those natives were not able to and become a liaison uh, in, in, you know, from a, the larger society to those native folks. And then the native folks were offering them this folk knowledge and all this stuff about how to survive out in the Ozarks. And so it's kind of symbiotic. And I think, you know, uh, they both grew to appreciate each other as groups. Now, that I, I want to say we did have a couple or at least one old-timer up on the mountain who really, if it weren't for him, we got to clean his chicken houses out and things like that for jobs, and he would give us food because it was barter up there. We, you know, my mom, she did work at a health food store, which was uncommon back in the early 80s, uh, and they didn't give money. They just gave her food, and it was near, it was about 14 miles from the house, and then we would do clearing of land or whatever, and then this fellow who passed away here recently would give us meat that he had in his out, outdoor freezer or whatever, and uh, you know, very frequently we would have beans and cornbread with them. So if it weren't for him, I'm not sure how we would have made it. 
guess you had the the young strong backs as well that were important for <laughs> this type of and he was willing uh, to endeavor. overlook my dad's acerbic nature and he wouldn't cut my dad wouldn't cut his hair which is interesting because he he was having a hard time finding a job but one of the first jobs he tried to take on you know he he has a background in uh, all sorts of things he's very talented very smart he uh, went to a, a vocational college that's uh, I guess their community colleges now but. Uh, and took courses and graduated out of com- uh, cosmetology, thinking that, well, I can keep my hair long if oh, I'm a cosmetologist. okay. There wouldn't be I a guess. judgment. Yeah, there wouldn't be him. judgment. Well, he's just, you know, he's cutting yeah. hair. And so he was doing stuff that was kind of out of the bounds, but within the bounds a little bit to, to try to make ends meet. It was so rough. I mean, it was really rough for us for a number of years. Tom Kirsten is our guest today. We're talking about his book, Where Misfits Fit, Counterculture and Influence in the Ozarks. A good chunk of the book is talking about the different music traditions and and I guess in particular talking about kind of contemporary music of the, you know, I think there's been a lot of documentation of the old time music of the, you know, that, you know, from the kind of old acoustic and country music and that. But but you kind of get into the 1970s and how the music changed. Mm. And uh, we played a little Black Oak, Arkansas. Let's let's talk a little bit about Black Oak. They're a really kind of interesting. I mean, I just I think they're just such a. A weird and interesting uh, group of guys. How did you uh, like uh, Jim Mangrum's voice when you first heard him? Uh, it's it's uh, it takes some getting used to. Yeah, that but was that was me as well. I think the thing that I remember is somebody shared at like a, a, a performance of theirs, like a television uh-huh. performance, and you're just like, this guy is David Lee Roth before David Lee Roth existed. I mean, he's yeah. he's got yeah. that super um, charisma. He's got charisma. He's 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 got the sex appeal. He's yeah. dangerous. He's yeah. he's going crazy the whole time. I mean, it's that was that was the thing that just drew me. Is just them as a, visually, they were really compelling as well. Yeah, I uh, so I had the same reaction. I think we had similar reactions when I encountered Black Oak, Arkansas. It's like this voice. This voice is pretty out there. It's not one I've, I'm. I'm going to have to spend some time thinking about it. It's it's not beautiful. And then the music uh, really identifies with the South and Ozark. And if you see some of their videos there, it's Dixie Flags. And that, I truly don't identify with that. But, you know, um, I do know that they were part of the, they too had a compound. They were back to the land. They were kind of libertarian in orientation. So they lived together somewhat, the band and they shared resources, which I thought that was interesting and appealing. And the other big thing about Black Oak is they were really community-minded. So they were involved in politics. I think they were involved with uh, some of the, you know, like Jimmy Carter, some of the Democratic campaigns back in the, in the day. Uh, and so uh, they also gave money to, uh, you know, maybe a house burned down or something like that or a community building burned down. I don't remember the exact specifics, but you could count on Black Oak, Arkansas, uh, stepping in and uh, doing a fundraiser uh, concert f- for those people. The other thing, too, is I think David Lee Roth and others, not only David Lee Roth, really do owe Jim Mangrum a debt of gratitude. And I'm surprised that they never really talk about that. You know, I mean, when you look at David Lee Roth, it's t- I see that and it's like, man, you're stealing everything. And now I've grown to appreciate the voice, and I like their lyrics as well. And the reason why I like the lyrics is because, to me, I think Black Oak, Arkansas fits this trickster thing I talk about in the book. In the one sense, you know, they defy convention. and uh, Well, they defy convention in all sorts of ways. But in other ways, 
they are very conventional or even uh, conservative, wanting to get back to old-time Arkansas, Dixie flag, um, you know, old-time ways of thinking about things, etc. And if you look at their lyrics, quite often it's uh, talking about this dancing on the edge of a knife of between uh, moving towards free expression and then uh, having to come back a little bit towards uh, tradition. Yeah, they're they're very they were a distinctive voice for sure, and really kind of flew the flag for Arkansas <laughs> out there when ever all the bands like that would have been from California or you know or I guess they were kind of on that early cusp of Southern rock as well. Oh, they were big. Yeah, they were. Uh, you know, Cal Jam was one of the biggest uh, in California, and Black Oak went out there and they stormed. I mean, they they kicked butt on that one. Talk about a little bit about the Hot Mulch Band that you that you document in the book. Now, Hot Mulch Band, you would say, uh, they come out of the Ozarks, but they come, uh, you know, they're back to Lander. So they're opposite of the way most musicians, musicians start out first as musicians and then may branch out into their uh, passions. These were people who were passionate about sustainability, about environmentalism, about uh, wholesome foods, all these types of things that now have become somewhat mainstreamed. They weren't mainstream back in the uh, early uh, 70s in Missouri. And so th- there were several communes, and they almost like a consortium of communes that would get together and work, 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 grow things, learn about alternative or create alternative uh, energy sources like solar paneling. Well before lots of places were even thinking about that, they were uh, trying to figure out how to deal with uh, methane capture off of manure, doing a lot of wonderful, interesting things about sustainability. And out of that process, there were some artistic folks who were, you know, very smart about engineering and uh, science and whatnot, but they were also talented in terms of music. And so, you know, you can't work all day. You have to stop at some point, and you get together with all these people who are like-minded. And so they started, um, you know, the, the band came up organically out of that process of those communes coming together to work alternative energy, even education. So how do you educate your children when you perceive the mainstream education as, you know, teaching things that you don't think are uh, beneficial for your children? So they were doing alternative education. The point of all that is these folks would come together, and out of that came the hot mulch band. Hot mulch itself is another word for manure. And so they're always uh, a little bit tongue-in-cheek about everything. And they kind of created a signature uh, sound for the back-to-land movement in Missouri, at least. I take that back for the Ozarks, maybe even Appalachia, because some one of their songs uh, really describes the day-to-day life of a back-to-lander a hot mulcher in the Missouri Ozarks. They came together and uh, invited me to come up to Springfield, and I got to interview them all and then hear them play. And so even after all these years... When Hot Mulch came out, they're still passionate, still you know ready to fight that good fight and about sustainability and, and do music. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app.
Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back for our final segment on the Arts Tower today. Our guest today is Tom Curson, and we're talking about his book, Where Misfits Fit, Counterculture and Influence in the Ozarks. It's just out on University Press of Mississippi. And Tom is a professor of sociology at Jackson State University. Another kind of distinctive area that you look into is the long history of UFO sightings in the Ozark region. And you kind of look at the history. I mean, and, and again, there, uh, like a lot of this other stuff, we're not talking about whether UFOs exist or not, but it's more about the the large number of like how common this was of an occurrence and how it kind of has, has transformed over time as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, every time uh, this topic comes up and since this book's come out, it's come up quite a bit. People say, you know, I'll say things, well, so are they real or not? And I have to tell them that's not my point. Uh, uh, It's a story. And I want to tell the story that these people, who are these people? What do they believe and Who are they? And so I think that's a much more interesting story than going around in a circular argument about whether or not these things exist. And so I try to steer away from that, uh, as, as well as the cult stuff and whatnot. So the UFO, what I was able to do is um, there are a number of online databases and report uh, reporting mechanisms deal with this topic. Uh, people are willingly or they're willing to report UFO sightings. So that was one form of data that I looked at, and I was able to, uh, you know, use geographic information technology to plot where most of those reports are coming from, and they're coming out of the Ozarks. So when you're talking about Arkansas, they're coming out of the Ozarks. And immediately the question pops up of why? Why is that? And I I think, and and, uh, Missouri as well, but not to the same extent as the Arkansas Ozarks. And I think we can start looking at the Ozarks as a place, again, that's liminal, that allows for expressions, different expressions, maybe of things that had been used in the past and reconfigure them in certain a hybridization, if you will, of uh, uh, different cultures. And they're able to come in and recombine in certain ways in the Ozarks that maybe we really didn't think about. I tell the story of finding this article in an Ozark paper. You know, early on when they were talking about UFOs, and it's pretty much 1940s, late 1940s with the uh, uh, Washington State farmer who reported seeing something flying in the sky like a a flying cup and saucer. That got transmogrified into flying saucer. He didn't say it was a flying saucer. He said it flew like one. After that, there was just all around, uh, except Mississippi, Alabama, places like that, but almost everywhere else, and especially in the Ozarks, there were a number of people uh, who started, re- started reporting this. And so there were pictures. I have a picture of, uh, uh, a, you know, UFOs over University of Arkansas in Fayetteville in which they drew these discs with chicken wings because you don't know, if, if you don't have any verbiage or anything to describe this new thing, you go with what you have. And so it's kind of funny, that picture. 
Uh, and then the other one, too, they didn't know who was operating these UFOs. And there was one editorial from a, a fellow named Simply Me, as tongue-in-cheek, I suppose, but they were uh, putting forward the hypothesis that it was, the UFOs were uh, being operated by moonshiners to get the moonshine away from the revenuers. And so they would use the, the uh, UFOs to do that. And I thought that was amusing. But we really had no idea And uh, about, at that point, in the 40s and 50s, if it was our people, if it was the communists, if it was aliens, whatever. We really had, everything was kind of fuzzy and not really formed in until you start having this popular culture with, you know, green critters with big eyes and whatnot. So it's kind of bracketed in to this point. But back then it was really loose and, um, you know, different pictures of different UFO-y things. And even you couldn't trust whether or not some Missourians or Arkansans were truly Missourians and Arkansans. Some people have written uh, from that state have, uh, I know specifically about the Missouri book I have where he talks about going through a farmland and there's someone walking by and he's wondering if they were truly a Missourian or an alien. Mm. So there's just this kind of willingness. I think it's based on the ready stock of folklore and uh, tall tales and all that that just were already there. And uh, it's really interesting. You kind of talk about in in the book a little bit about that there are you can go back into the, the, the folk tales and legends and, and mm-hmm. or, or, or people have personal experience narratives that are more historical that are they saw fantastical things, but yeah. they weren't the I the concept of a UFO wasn't something people knew about. So right. they talked about fairies or they talked about some other kind of mystical being. Swamp gas. Swamp yeah. gas. Yeah. All these all these different things. They're yeah, they every once in a while you'll you'll hear people talk about things up in the skies, but really it wasn't until about the 40s, late 40s, early 50s, and especially with uh, and the worry of communists, uh, especially where you start to see this percolate in a big way. And it's interesting because, I mean, you look at Mississippi. I did look at the reporting of UFOs in Mississippi, and it is far, far less. And one of the things I found interesting about the UFOs and the UFO conferences and all that is it, it is really a, there's a racial element to it. Uh, it tends to be white folks. You know, the other thing, so I want to know who who kind of those people are. Uh, one way you can do that is just go out in a parking lot and look what they drive. And uh, can you guess what they would most likely drive in that parking lot at that conference? At the UFO conference? Yeah. I don't know. Priuses. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, kind of aff- a little bit affluent, I guess, if you're having a Prius. And so I'm not sure about the typical Ozarkian that goes to that conference. I want to differentiate that fact versus all these reports coming in. So it seems it's hitting all classes in the Ozarks, upper class all the way down to really uh, humble people of humble origin. So it's permeated into the culture quite a bit. And what's amazing is since I've been doing this, people I, that I encountered as a teenager there. Oh yeah, I, I've seen a UFO. You know, they'll tell me that after the fact. Like, geez, I did not know that. <laughs> or so you talking about the book about this research, and then they've yeah, got their own say, story. Oh, you know, I didn't know you were writing a book about that. Did you know I I had an encounter? It's like, geez, Louise, I knew you all this time, and now you tell me you had a UFO encounter. Uh, so that's interesting. And the other interesting sort of semi-story that goes with this is that UFO, there's, so this, there's a conference side of the story, and then there's the reporting and uh, building up the context. 
I was amazed to find that Library of Congress had these oral histories that come out of the Ozarks in the 1970s, early 80s, the time I landed in the Ozarks. And they're uh, some of the people that went to the school I was at and their parents or whatever. And some of them said in those transcripts, one of them said he saw several UFOs coming down. And I thought, well, okay, I have to do this now. I just have to do it. I mean, I don't know if it's divine intervention or whatever. I see it in the Library of Congress. People are telling me that I've known for all this time now that there's UFOs, whatever. And so I guess I've got to talk about it. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Tom Kirsten. We're talking about his book, Where Misfits Fit, Counterculture and Influence in the Ozarks, out on University Press in Mississippi. Another area that was I th- that you kind of just that you go into in the book that I thought was really interesting was you uh, describe them as new religious communities. So kind of groups that came to the Ozarks kind of as a group and established their own kind of commune or their own kind of uh, community there to further their mission as as a religious group. Yeah, and uh, so I I do think it's important. You know, I've been very now, when I use the word conservative, what I mean by this is I'm not willing to just uh, freely sprinkle the word cult on everything. And we do that way too often. Um, I, I've seen that used, for instance, for Unitarian Universalists, calling them a cult. <laughs> Amazing that people do that. But a cult really, to me, has an element of exploitation. There's, to me, a cult. The identity of the individual in the cult is submerged into the identity of the leader. There's just very precise things that go into being a cult. And so it's very rare uh, that a lot of times what people call a cult is a cult. But almost all religions start out as a cult in, in one way or another. So they're new. I mean, they bring in different things, and they're persecuted, and they're wandering off and trying to establish a new uh, ideology and homestead and whatnot. So uh, we forget that as well, that cult mainstream dynamic that goes on in all religions. Well, in a particular county in Arkansas, Searcy County, this happened at least twice. There was uh, uh, the Incoming Kingdom, which were a bunch of proto-hippies back in the 20s who believed in radio mind, um, who started referring to themselves by St. Peter and St. John, all these different, and they started having a, a battle of who was more saintly. And so uh, one of the things about communes, cults, or anything really, is the, able, the ability to live or persist. And one of the ways that uh, those organizations die out is personalities start to conflict in a great big way. And so there was a lot of infighting. So that, you know, incoming, uh, the incoming folks were of an ideology, but I don't really know that they subsumed themselves in the 20s with uh, uh, the leader's identity to the extent that the later group, and this is really amazing because uh, the Ozarks are almost all white. I take that back. Nowadays, there are quite a few Hispanics and some Asians, uh, and you start to see a few African Americans. But um, in Searcy County, uh, later on, a group called the Purple People, that's not their official name, but we'll just say it's per- the Purple People, and they do refer to themselves as Purple People too. And the reason why they're called the Purple People is they dress entirely in purple. They have purple van that they took to the UFO conference. That's where I learned about them. And uh, they have purple homestead, I mean, buildings and whatnot. Everything's purple, and it's dealing with the vibration. Purple is supposed to be a, a vibration that brings one closer to Godhead. And it's an African-American cult. 
which is amazingly rare in American history, and an American, African-American cult in the Ozarks, so that makes it doubly rare. You got an African-American cult, and it, it is one that uh, resides in the Ozarks, and they were well, pretty much left uh, alone. They came out of New Orleans uh, originally, well, Jackson, New Orleans, and then migrated eventually up into Searcy County, Arkansas. And one of the reasons I initially didn't want to call them a cult was I kind of thought, well, you know, he's sending out members to, to go to these conferences and do this, that, and the other, so they have some autonomy. But through some reporting uh, that I read and getting a sense of what's going on in that, uh, you know, from that reporting and other things as well, the members really, er, anything he says is what they do. And uh, in terms of thinking, uh, it's whatever he tells them to think. They can't freely associate with uh, people outside the commune, uh, the cult, which is another symptom of a cult, is you know the ability to associate with people outside your group or not. So I have come to agree with others that it is a cult, and we, you know, in some of that reporting, uh, excellent reporting by uh, Jacqueline Froelich um, out of University of Arkansas Fayetteville, I believe it is. You know, she was able to detail some of the abuses that were going on in that cult, and so I wish the best for those folks and I think that man the leader of the cult is rather old and I'm not sure the status of uh, its existence at the moment probably on its way out I guess kind of well that's another symptom of a cult is uh and maintaining a cult status is can they persist once the charismatic leader is gone if they persist then it's probably not going to become it's not going to maintain culthood it'll become more and more mainstream as it passes down generations uh, if it's a cult, it'll, it's entirely on, on the identity of that person. And if they're not there, then it, it'll fold. Well, Tom, I really appreciate you coming in today. Uh, for folks who wanna, are interested in learning more about your book, where should we send them? Well, there's University Press of Mississippi. Um, they have a website. And then also Lemuria Books has signed copies, uh, that, uh, quite a few of them at Lemuria. And I think there are some spots in Arkansas, too, that we're working on trying to get the book out to. So those three big things there, um, Lemuria, University Press of Mississippi, and then in the future, we'll, uh, I'm sure, especially with University Press of Mississippi, they'll let us know the other venues as they come up. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can... Please contribute today at mpbonline.org. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app.